podcast, episode three of my breakdown, my readings and reflections on The Science of Canon Kant by Chiara Marletto. This is the book explaining the new physics of constructor theory, the new theory of constructor theory, it's really much broader than merely physics, by David Deutsch, Chiara Marletto and their collaborators. In the last two episodes, we've looked at chapter one. And in that chapter, in the last episode, we looked at how dynamical laws and initial conditions actually work within physics in order to be able to provide you with a prediction of what's going to happen as some kind of physical system evolves over time. Today, we're moving on to chapter two, and Chiara's going to explain the limitations of that approach, as well as the benefits of that approach and why that approach has worked so well hitherto, until now. So without much more preamble, I'm going to get straight into the reading. I'm going to do a, a fair bit, probably about 50-50 reading and commentary today. I'm certainly not reading the entire chapter. You need to buy the book for that. Okay, so let's begin. Chapter 2 is called Beyond Laws of Motion? Question mark. And Chiara writes as an introduction to this chapter. Where I explain the logic of the traditional conception of physics, which uses exclusively explanations by dynamical laws and supplementary conditions, why it cannot capture counterfactuals such as information, work and heat or knowledge, and why physics needs to resort to a radically different approach based on counterfactuals, statements about what is possible or impossible, to incorporate those entities in an exact and fundamental way. Now, immediately I'm skipping a few pages as I just suggested. Um, what Chiara does in these first few pages is describe people of the past who are somewhat primitive to us, I suppose, and how they struggled to survive and encountered problems. But at least they had one thing better than other animals, they possessed knowledge. So people of the past, early explorers in particular, that's the example that she uses, had knowledge that enabled them to make predictions, predictions of the weather, of the conditions of the seas, and in particular of the winds to enable them to navigate the ocean somewhat better than people who didn't have such knowledge. And so, as Chiara goes on to write, knowledge allowed them to make predictions about favourable winds and currents, about where they might encounter rocks or dangerous shallows, about how long their journey would last. Such predictions tamed some of their doubts and fears and eased them through perils and uncertainties. As for those early explorers, predictions are still the most sought-after output of science, and of physics in particular. They will be one of the focuses of this chapter. I shall explain the logic of the traditional way of making predictions in physics, show its limitations, and suggest how counterfactuals can remedy some of those limitations. A prediction, in physics as well as in other fields, is a conjecture about some piece of information that is not known prior to the prediction. Like any conjecture, a prediction could be false, as one might discover by checking whether the prediction is or is not met in reality. False does not imply useless. Pausing there, just my reflection on this. Remember that Chiara like David, like myself, are Papirians. So all knowledge is conjectural, or any claim that we make is conjectural. Anything that come out of your mouth, or out of your pen, or out of your computer, is going to be conjectural. And that includes predictions. 
So even if you have a robust scientific theory, a good theory of physics, for example, that allows you to make predictions, the predictions themselves, well, they're still conjectures as well because they're being derived from a conjectured explanation. So they can't be anything more than conjectures. They're not more certain. They're not going to give you more reliable knowledge or anything like that. What they're going to do is tell you what's going to happen on the assumption that this particular theory of, in this case, physics, is true. So, it's, so the prediction works on the assumption that the underlying explanation works. And even then that you haven't made an error somewhere or other in moving from your explanation to your prediction. And this brings me to a slight distinction here that Chiaro doesn't make in the science of can and can't, but I've made elsewhere, following the beginning of infinity, for example, that there are species of guesses about the future. There are predictions, which are something like, in, in my words, derivations, logical derivations, given a good, typically scientific theory, and in opposition to this, there are prophecies. Now, prophecies come in various kinds. They might come completely uncoupled from any consideration of good experimental knowledge. And in particular, they can come uncoupled from knowledge about knowledge. A prophet is, after all, someone who guesses about the future, either at random or in some cases, and this is the more technical sense that David Deutsch seems to use the word, prophecy is where the prophet purports to explain what will happen in the future while ignoring the effects that people might have, namely what knowledge they might create. Scientists, unfortunately, can be prone to this which means politicians will be as well, because they tend to take scientists very seriously, even when they're being prophetic. And we'll come to some examples of this. But long-term predictions about the behaviour of civilizations or what might happen to Earth or even the region around Earth, given the existence of people who are bringing in to existence knowledge, which can create technology, which can change the outcome of whatever your prediction is going to be, is always something that needs to be kept in mind and something that politicians, for example, the people whose hands are on the levers of economic power to a large extent, can end up making decisions based upon the prophecies of scientists who assume that no such technology and no such creativity can ever affect their derivations from their otherwise usually good scientific theories. And of course, that's in the best case. That's in the case where the scientist is really using a good scientific theory rather than a hypothesis which might indeed not contain a good explanation at the heart of it. Okay, let's continue on this line that uh, Chiara has about prediction. And she writes, An example of a false, but far from useless, prediction in maritime history is that made by Christopher Columbus in the 15th century. He predicted that by travelling westwards from the coasts of Europe, one could reach the east, the Indies. His specific prediction was, as we know, erroneous, or to be precise, incomplete. He had not guessed that another continent was in the way. In fact, Columbus's ocean exploration is how Renaissance Europe discovered the Americas. Still, his prediction was powerful, useful, and contained some truth. Had he been able to continue travelling westwards beyond America, or thousands more miles south round Cape Horn, he would have reached India. 
pausing there, just my reflection. Uh, this is a point I've made uh, elsewhere before as well. I should stop saying that. <laughs> but I do tend to repeat myself in various uh, podcasts. I should add here, okay, I should add to this idea of a false but far from useless prediction, of course, lots of things in physics, like, for example... Any prediction made from Newton's theory, any prediction made from Newton's theory must, strictly speaking, turn out false, because the theory itself is false. But that doesn't make it useless, and it doesn't make it a bad explanation either. It's a false explanation, but it's very, very, very useful, and it contains some truth, as that phrase there that Chiara has used um, comes into its own, containing some truth, not a quantity of truth that we can measure or anything like that. And, And in fact... Not only are the predictions from Newton's theory not useless, they can sometimes be more useful, in a sense, depending upon your problem situation, than the more true theory, the more accurate theory, the best explanation, which is Einstein's relativity in this particular case. And it's all to do with precision and perhaps uh, efficiency. So if you want to do something like, let's say, determine the cause of a car accident because you're a crash scene investigator working with the police and you need to retrodict what happened, what, what previously happened, you arrive on the scene and it's just a mangled wreckage of two cars that have crashed into each other and now you're trying to figure out based upon the amount of damage done and the tyre marks and so on, the evidence that you've got there before you, to determine whether or not if one or both of the drivers were breaking laws in some way, like breaking the speed limit, then strictly speaking, if you really wanted to get the highest precision, most accurate, most correct answer, you should be using Einstein's special relativity. But no one's going to do that. No one's actually going to do that. Because although your answer would be closer to the actual truth of the matter, presuming that all your assumptions are correct as well, it's going to be swamped by the errors in your assumptions anyway. Even if you had perfect assumptions about what was going on and you were able to find out the velocity of these cars prior to the crash to figure out if either of the parties had been breaking the law, Newtonian physics is going to do just as well in our court of law to try and make your case. Because the difference between the two answers that you get for the velocities of the cars will be found in like the fifth decimal place or something, a fraction of a percentage difference between them. It only becomes significant, special relativity, the effects of special relativity only become significant once the velocity gets really, really high. So this is why, in fact, the false theory can sometimes be preferable because more people will A, understand it, B, be able to apply it more efficiently and quickly, especially if time is a factor, and C, is going to be well within the error bars, we might say, of whatever the assumptions might be in the first place. So the differences between special relativity and Newtonian physics are going to be completely swamped by all the other elasticity in the calculation, namely what you assume to begin with and what the evidence enables you to measure as a matter of fact. Okay, back to the book. And Chiara writes, A notorious case of a useless prediction appears in the legend of the, and I'm going to butcher this completely, Cumian Sibyl, the priestess who resided in the Apollonian Oracle at Cumae, an ancient Greek colony where Naples is today. The story goes that a pilgrim came to her asking for a prediction about whether he would return safely from an imminent war. This was the Sibyl's reply. Ibis redibus, 
non moriris in bello. The cryptic sentence contains a prediction, which is what the pilgrim was hoping for. But unfortunately for the pilgrim, it is hopelessly vague. According to where one pauses, a after redibus or after non, that statement can have two completely different meanings. One is, you will go, you will not come back, you will die at war. The other is, you will go, you will come back, you will not die at war. Apparently the statement was uttered only once and with a flat tone of voice, so it was impossible to tell which one of the two meanings it had. Okay, pausing there, just my reflection. It's, of course, quite typical for an ancient <laughs> prophet to be vague. Modern prophets, of course, are similarly vague at times. All the claims of looming disasters of various kinds, economic, environmental, civilizational, AI apocalypse, it's always coming, but we're never really told precisely when or by what means or exactly what the nature of the disaster will be. It's all prophecy, perhaps one step up from Sybil's there, but not much. While Sybil's is kind of vacuous because it's a contradiction, there's two competing predictions, both of which rule the other one out. At least uh, our modern day prophets are sometimes making an actual claim of a thing that is purportedly going to happen. For example, the AI will kill us and take over the world. Of course, many do not quite do this. Many make sybil like claims. That being, AI might kill us and take over the world. Or global warming might melt all the polarised caps before we choose to do anything about it. But of course, anything might be the case. Anything not precluded by the laws of physics and all that might be the case. Back to the book. Chiara writes, What is the difference between Columbus's predictions and the Sibyls? The former is powerful and worthy even if false, the latter useless. But why exactly? The answer shall not be found by examining the contents of the predictions themselves. We have to go deeper. The difference lies in what the predictions rely on. It lies in the underlying explanations. The prophecy of the Cumian Sibyl did not rely on an offer or explanation of why the pilgrim would or would not come back from war. Without any further explanation, it is impossible to tell which of the two opposite meanings that statement has. Columbus's prediction instead relied on a good explanation, that the earth was round, pausing there just again. Um, yeah, and to this I would add that even if there's a good explanation on offer about the future, it sometimes needs to take into account other good explanations, which, if it ignores them, will get the prediction wrong. The one I mention often is the prediction, quite scientific in a, in a sense, that the sun will eventually run out of hydrogen fuel, expand into a red giant, and boil all the oceans of the Earth as it does so. That seems like a reasonable prediction for five billion years hence, given what we know, which is quite robust, good explanations about stars like the sun. The problem is, it ignores what people might do. It ignores other good explanations. It purports, in other words, to know a future that creativity may have an impact on. It presumes that creativity cannot possibly have an impact upon that scenario. And by the way, supposedly the oceans will boil well before 5 billion years hence due to increasing temperature of the sun anyway if we don't do anything about it. That, of course, is always the point. On this planet, for as long as we're here, any prediction is always, unless we don't do anything about it. So any prediction in science is going to come true unless we do something about it. But we will 
often do something about it. And by the way, you can simply Google when will the oceans boil to find a debate over the time frame. It's about a billion years or so, apparently. Back to the book, Kiara writes, The quality of a prediction depends ultimately on the underlying explanation. This point is so important that we need to spend a little time reflecting on it. It is just like what happens on a long hike. When you reach a spot with a wonderful view, it is good to pause and take a little rest while contemplating the beauty of the landscape from that particular place. Our gaze now moves far away from the gloomy land of oracles and comes to rest on a boundless, shimmering prairie, a field where the connection between good explanations and powerful predictions is clear and immediate. It is the field of physics. Predictions in physics are powerful. They supersede religious and mythological predictions, and also those made by rules of thumb. Rules such as, in order to grow good carrots in your garden, you need to sow carrot seeds in February. Often, laws of physics are so general that they make claims about the universe as a whole. Just pausing there. I'm not going to read the next section. It's an interesting story. It's the story of the discovery of Neptune. And the discovery of Neptune was basically about the fact that as Uranus went around the sun, or Uranus as some people say, as it went around the sun, its orbit deviated from what was predicted from Newtonian physics. And this led astronomers to be able to predict where Neptune should be found and training their telescopes towards that region of space, indeed, they found it. And this was so successful, of course, that um, it led scientists later on to presume that a similar effect was happening with Mercury. Uh, and so they presumed that there was this hidden planet that was perturbing the orbit of Mercury. As it turned out, no such planet was found or ever could be found or indeed exists because the solution there was not another planet perturbing the orbit of Mercury from what was predicted behind Newtonian physics, but rather it was because Newtonian physics turns out to be false and you need general relativity to get the orbit right. Okay, back to the book and Kiara writes... In physics and in science in general, both explanations and predictions must satisfy strict criteria. In particular, explanations must generate predictions that are testable. End quote. Okay, I haven't read much there, but I feel that this needs lingering over. She's just written there. In particular, explanations must generate predictions that are testable. Now, after years of doing this, to me, of course, and to anyone who listens to me at all, um, you'll be bored of um, hearing something like that. It's quite clearly the case. This is in science, okay? In science, you need explanations that generate testable predictions. I'm astonished now that it still needs to be said and this thesis still needs to be defended not because we want to say that science is the king of all subjects and there's nothing else that's important because we have testable theories and so we are the superior subject. No, nothing like that. It's simply we need testable theories so that we have a measure by which we can actually talk sensibly about how to determine what is really going on in the physical world and which of our competing theories is going to be the correct one or the more correct one and which one has been refuted. If we've got no experimental way of refuting two good explanations, then how do we choose between them? How do we take action scientifically? Now, morality, on the other hand, is not testable. 
And in many, many cases, you certainly shouldn't go testing moral claims. It would be a great mistake. For example, we shouldn't be going out and testing what kind of torture actually causes more suffering. On the one hand, that's a scientific question. On the other, it's a moral question. But we shouldn't do it, and no one should do this. There's all sorts of moral things that we shouldn't try to test. The same is true of certain theories in economics, certain theories in politics, uh, a claim like, you know, Marxism is true. It's not actually testable, but to the extent that it's already been tried, it's failed everywhere. So there's no need to keep on trying it because there's a moral claim at the centre of it. There are claims about people that we know are false, claims about society that we know are false. There is science, there is non-science, and there is pseudoscience. Morality is non-science, but that doesn't make it unimportant. It is crucially important. Marxism, on the other hand, along with astrology, is a pseudoscience. Both of them can be dismissed as false because they're bad explanations. And to the extent that anyone has ever taken them seriously as explanations, they have suffered. In the case of astrology, pursuing a false system for directing one's life in a particular way when better ideas are actually on offer. And in the case of Marxism, well, the death of hundreds of millions of people. So there's a spectrum of bad effects that these pseudoscientific ideas can have on people. But anyways, some people, well, as I've said before, let's face it, by some people, I actually mean some theoretical physicists, get their noses quite out of joint on this point. They want to argue that testability is itself some kind of antiquated notion, that we are attacking their favourite ideas, those favourite ideas of theirs arising, in a sense, out of physics, because we say they're not testable. I've seen people get upset that claiming universes with other laws of physics are not properly part of science because they're not testable, because we cannot make an observation of them or do a crucial experimental test of them. But there's no reason to be upset about that. Metaphysics is absolutely fine. And what wasn't testable yesterday might turn out to be testable tomorrow if we can figure out how. I think this almost needs to be written on the walls of any academy of the future. Let no one enter here who is ignorant of areas outside of science. There are scientists who think that being scientific is a virtue in a way that being artistic or being philosophical is not and so on. But mathematics, for example, is not science. Constructing mathematical structures that describe alternative physical laws of a universe that is not our own is just that, constructing mathematical structure. It's not strictly doing science. It's doing theoretical physics of a kind, I guess. But this would just place that kind of theoretical physics within the realm of pure mathematics, which is absolutely fine. As I've said before, pure mathematicians, Hardy was one, have been proud of the fact that their mathematics was utterly disconnected from the real physical world in a sense. It was about purely abstract things. At least that's what they thought. In Hardy's case, he actually said it, and I'll quote from his book, A Mathematician's Apology. He said, quote, I have never done anything useful. No discovery of mine has made or is likely to make, directly or indirectly, for good or ill, the least difference to the amenity of the world, end quote. <laughs> and so he was, he was proud of the fact he was kind of like almost an abstract artist. He was just doing stuff with his mind disconnected from the physical world to a large extent. And he thought that nothing about his mathematics could possibly make a difference. But I'm just going to read from um, uh, the Wikipedia article on Hardy, actually. 
And the Wikipedia article says, Aside from formulating the Hardy-Weinberg principle in population genetics, Hardy's famous work on integer partitions with his collaborator Ramanujan, known as the Hardy-Ramanujan asymptotic formula, has been widely applied in physics to find quantum partition functions of atomic nuclei, first used by Niels Bohr to derive thermodynamic functions of non-interacting Bose-Einstein systems. Though Hardy wanted his maths to be pure and devoid of any application, much of his work has found applications in other branches of science, end quote. And so even if you're doing pure mathematics, or you think you are, it could be applied later on. If you think you're doing metaphysics, it could be applied later on. It's no sin to be doing these things because they might come within the purview of science. And so actually Hardy's work is now part of science. So too for people working on megaverse theories or the claims about alternative laws of physics and alternative universes. It's all to the good, kind of like string theory. At the moment, none of it seems to be testable and so therefore strictly within part of science, so to speak. But the lesson of Hardy's pure mathematics should resonate. His work was important regardless of whether or not it would eventually be applied. That it was brought into science in a sense eventually just makes it now doubly important. Okay, back to the book. <laughs> Kiara writes, Perhaps you have noticed that being testable is itself a counterfactual property pertaining to what can be done with the prediction. There are indeed counterfactuals at the heart of most fundamental scientific theories and of the process of scientific discovery. Specifically, testable means that it must be possible to set up an experiment to disprove the prediction if it is false, i.e. if it does not match what is actually observed in reality. Okay, so end quote. That's, that's perfect. Um, uh, uh, Chiara then goes on in the book to give some simple examples of what it means to be testable in science. I think people listening to this probably know uh, what it means. So we'll skip over those. And she also goes over some untestable ones, like, for example, that the universe might be supported on the back of a dog or many dogs or infinite dogs, which is a variation of that whole joke about its turtles all the way down. Okay, these metaphysical theories that can't be tested. Okay, or so far as we know, can't be tested. Of course, if we could observe this dog on which the universe was supported, then it would be part of the universe, part of the observable universe, and therefore it would be testable. But <laughs> presuming that these things are outside the universe and therefore, by definition, outside of what we can observe means they're untestable. Okay, so I'm skipping quite a substantial bit and going to the part where Kiara writes, quote, why is testability of predictions so central to the progress of physics and science in general? The reason is that it provides a particularly efficient way to find mistakes in the explanations and correct them. I want to open a digression to illustrate how predictions, explanations and testing are all intertwined within the method that allows science to make tentative progress. To this end, let me stir the cloudy water in the pond of history and bring up the spirit of the thinker who pioneered the scientific method as we know it, Galileo Galilei. Galileo's experiments to test his predictions are striking for their beauty and simplicity. He intended to test his theory's predictions about the motion of systems against those that Aristotle had proposed in antiquity and which had been considered the authority ever since. Galileo's predictions were about the motion of a hard, smooth bronze sphere left to roll inside an inclined smooth groove without friction. In particular, he predicted that spheres of different sizes or masses would undergo the same motion down the groove, the same speed in particular. 
This prediction was in sharp conflict with Aristotle's theory, which predicted that spheres of different masses would roll down with different speeds. On the face of it, Aristotle's idea seems intuitively true, which makes Galileo's prediction all the more interesting. Okay, pausing there and just skipping a little bit as well. And Chiara goes on to explain how. Well, this same idea, and the one that's usually taught in science class, is about, well, if you've got a, a small mass, one kilogram mass, one kilogram sphere of metal, and you've got a larger mass, a five kilogram sphere of metal, and you drop them simultaneously, which one hits the ground first? And the intuitive idea, even amongst some adults that I've done this with, who haven't learned physics for whatever reason, or have never done the experiment, think that the heavy one must hit the ground first. And this kind of, it makes intuitive sense. The reason it makes intuitive sense is because, of course, people think of feathers and leaves fluttering to the ground. And so they think that it's due to the mass. Now, you have to try and eliminate air resistance in order to do the experiment properly. But once you do control the experiment as well as you can, then indeed you find that the two masses hit the ground at the same time. Brian Cox does a wonderful version of this with actual feathers and bowling balls in a huge vacuum chamber or put the image up on the screen it's a youtube and you can see in fact that the feathers do fall to the ground at the same time as the ball does and i think there was an astronaut of course as well and i've talked about this before um who dropped the feather and the hammer on the moon at the same time and they hit the ground at the same time as well but you you don't even need well you do need to do the experiment to disprove the different theories but there is a thought experiment that you can do as well on the assumption that the rest of physics uh, is unchanged. And Chiara talks about the thought experiment. And so let me read the thought experiment. Quote from Chiara. Galileo reasoned like this. If one joins a smaller sphere to a larger sphere via a string and then drops them both from a height, what happens, according to Aristotle, is that the smaller sphere has a smaller velocity. In this thought experiment, the smaller sphere should lag behind if the two spheres can fall down for long enough, the smaller sphere would slow down the larger one by pulling on the string. So the combined system, made of two spheres, would go down at a speed that is slower than that of the larger sphere by itself. But here is the glitch. This contradicts Aristotle's idea that, that systems with larger masses should have larger velocities. After all, the system made of the two connected spheres has a larger mass than the larger sphere by itself. If Aristotle's idea were true, it should be faster, not slower, as we concluded. Therefore, by this thought experiment, Galileo was led to conclude that Aristotle's idea was false and that spheres of different masses should undergo the same motion when falling freely. He then conjectured, with another leap of creativity, that they should display the same behavior when sliding down the groove. Pause there, just my reflection. Uh, my version of, of, of this, of this of this thought experiment, if you like, is if you have, um, let's say, five people who like to go skydiving. They all jump out of the aeroplane. Now, on Aristotle's theory, the heavier that they are, the faster that they fall. Presume they've all got the same mass, so therefore they all fall at precisely the same rate. Now, if they're skilled skydivers... They can direct themselves in such a way that they're very close together. And they could literally 
um, put their arms out and hold hands with each other. Now, do you regard that as a system of five people with five times the mass of any one of them? And so when they hold hands, do they suddenly speed up? And then when they let go of hands, do they suddenly slow down? If they do indeed speed up when they hold hands, where is the energy coming from in order to increase their acceleration? What's going on there? I'm not sure why Aristotle himself didn't think of things like this. I don't know. Um, probably because he was thinking of just so much stuff and <laughs> that he uh, didn't think too deeply about his physics. Aristotelian physics is a, I guess, it's a first attempt. I was almost going to say it's a good first attempt. I don't think it's a good first attempt. <laughs> it's, um, it's not precise in any way. I don't know that he did much in the way of quantitative analysis and he didn't do experiments as well so that you know not a good scientist aristotle fine at other things fine at fine at other areas of philosophy um good at virtue ethics and that kind of thing bad physicist anyway um chiara goes on to explain how galileo of course went on to test the actual prediction that he made against Aristotle's ideas by observation. So he actually went and did the experiment. She doesn't mention the Leaning Tower of Pisa, maybe because that's a an urban legend. It's a myth. Uh, maybe he didn't actually drop things off the Leaning Tower of Pisa to see which one hit the ground first. But back to the book, and Chiara writes, Explanations whose predictions are found wrong in an experiment automatically become problematic. And they are usually dismissed in favour of alternative explanations. As mentioned in the first chapter, Galileo's and Newton's explanations and the resulting predictions have an important trait in common. Their approach to explaining physical reality is centred on what is usually called a law of motion. A law of motion, or a dynamical law, is a description of where a system, such as a sphere or a planet, goes given that its motion starts at a certain point in space and time. Think of a sequence of snapshots each of which represents the state of that system at different times. The law of motion provides the rule for how the snapshots are ordered. In particular, there will be an initial and a final snapshot, representing the starting and ending states of the motion, which in physics jargon are called initial conditions and final conditions. For instance, in the case of a ball fired by a cannon, the initial snapshot contains the ball sitting inside the cannon, about to be fired. The final snapshot represents it when it lands on the ground. Typically, any snapshot along the sequence is explained in terms of its predecessor, ultimately in terms of the initial snapshot. Now, all sequences of snapshots described by known laws of motion have a particular property. Each snapshot has only one predecessor and one successor in the sequence. This property is something physicists call reversibility of dynamical laws. Once you have gone all the way down the sequence of snapshots, you can go back without any uncertainty because each snapshot has one predecessor. Unlike in a garden or labyrinth with forking paths, therefore, no bifurcations occur along the line. There is no ambiguity in how to go back or forth. The explanation by laws of motion is the most traditional in physics. It was first introduced by Galileo, then it became established with Newton's laws. Today, the two most fundamental physical theories, general relativity and quantum theory, are expressed via laws of motion too. And so are all other theories that physicists generally consider fundamental, like those governing electromagnetic fields and elementary particles. The long-term success of the approach by laws of motion is remarkable. Its predictions are extremely powerful. Suppose, for instance, you were a general about to attack a city built by robust walls, which you want to batter down. 
Newton's laws tell you exactly how to tilt the cannon in order to maximize the impact of its projectiles by predicting their motion in every detail. For example, they tell you that there are only two possible paths available to the same point of impact for the cannonball with any particular speed. Pausing there is my reflection. If you're interested in this, this is all this topic of projectile motion, a big topic in you know junior level physics. Um, there is this thing, physics education technology from the University of Colorado, and there's this great little app that's on uh, putting up on the screen now, and you can play around with it in order to test precisely what Kiara's talked about there that you can either shoot something up really high so that it comes down and hits point X, or you can shoot it um, at a low trajectory and it will also land at that same point X. Uh, the, the calculations of this are simple and interesting because projectile motion brings together various aspects of otherwise disparate areas of mathematics. Algebra, trigonometry, uh, calculus if you want to go down that road as well. Back to the book, and Kiara writes, In both cases, the ball describes a parabola in the air, but with different maximum heights, depending upon the initial condition, the angle at which the cannon is tilted initially. When the cannon is tilted at a high angle, the ball flies high and falls down beyond the walls. If the cannon is tilted at a lower angle, the ball flies lower, and it can, if the angle is right, strike the protective wall. In both cases, the description of what is going on is encapsulated in the sequence of places the ball traverses as time goes by. This set of places is the ball's trajectory, its path, which is dictated by the laws of motion. Newton's law in this case. In this approach, the explanation for why the ball hits the target at the end is given in terms of the places the ball goes through. Ultimately, as I said, in terms of its initial position and velocity, the initial conditions of the system's motion. Since the dynamical law approach is so powerful, it is natural to wonder whether it could be extended to explain everything that happens in our universe, including the whole universe itself. In other words, would a physical theory of the initial conditions of the universe and of its laws of motion provide a satisfactory explanation for everything in it? The answer, as you are about to discover, is no. I shall point out that explanations in the form of laws of motion and initial conditions are excellent for a special purpose, i.e. to make predictions about what happens on a subpart of the universe like cannon or tennis balls, marbles and planets. But they cannot explain everything in physical reality. In fact, when regarded as an explanation of everything, they have serious problems. Problems are fruitful things in physics, as they are in life. They hold the promise of improvement when they are addressed properly. These problems are the very reason why we have to venture on our journey in the land of counterfactuals. As I said, the dynamical law type of explanation looks like a sequence of snapshots. It has an initial and a final snapshot. And there are all the snapshots in between whose order is set by the laws of motion. The explanation for something happening on an intermediate snapshot, for example, the cannonball is suspended in the air at the highest point of its trajectory, is in terms of what happens in the snapshots before and after that particular snapshot. Now, if the initial snapshot of the sequence reminds you of the dog in the cosmology I mentioned earlier in this chapter, you are quite right. Why should one have a particular initial snapshot and not a different one? Surely, there must be an additional explanation for that. 
But that explanation cannot be itself in the form of initial conditions and laws of motion. It cannot be given in terms of another sequence of snapshots. Otherwise, that explanation would just look like adding another sequence of snapshots to the existing sequence, placing it at the start of the latter. But that new sequence, in turn, would require an explanation for its own initial snapshot, and so on. In the dog-based explanation, this would correspond to supposing dogs all the way down to explain the first dog. The approach by initial conditions and laws of motion taken in its strict form is not a self-contained explanation for the universe. Adding sequences to the first sequence or dogs to the first dog does not help to address the problem. This problem is what philosophers call an infinite regress. It is exactly the same problem that religious explanations for the origin of the universe run into. Pausing there, just my reflection. Wow, that's really important. As an all-encompassing explanation, this dynamical laws and initial conditions thing, this thing that physics has hitherto used so powerfully and so well, nonetheless, ultimately, will fall into infinite regress if it tries to be a theory of everything. Another reason that physics is, as it is, can't explain everything, including physics. <laughs> um, and Chiara goes on to explain that uh, you know, God suffers from the same thing. If anyone um, says, what explains the universe? And, and they say, well, God you know, created the universe. And, of course, reasonably you can ask, well, who created God? If they say, and they usually do, nothing did, well, why not just take God out and just say nothing created the universe? Why have this additional assumption that doesn't actually explain anything? It's just another unexplained thing. And two unexplained things do not create an explanation. Anyway, back to the book and Kiara writes, quote, the issue of initial conditions is a serious problem in physics, which has long remained unsolved. There are currently some viable proposals which constitute the branch of physics called cosmology. These theories, incidentally, are not even remotely comparable in accuracy and sophistication with other existing successful theories, such as general relativity and quantum theory. They also suffer from the impossibility of testing some of their predictions. The reason is that they are all designed to agree that the universe should look exactly as we see it now. And therefore, they are all confirmed by what we see now. But it is impossible to discriminate between them by considering their predictions for how the universe should have looked at its origin, because it is impossible to set up tests then. This does not, of course, mean that there could not be any solution to the problem of initial conditions, but currently we do not have a satisfactory one. We must therefore think of alternative ways of looking at the problem. The science of Canon Kant provides a way because, unlike the traditional conception of physics, it does not rely on initial conditions or laws of motion as its fundamental primitive elements. When regarded as an explanation for the whole universe, dynamical laws are not self-contained in another important sense. Imagine, for example, a collection of pictures of the sphere rolling down Galileo's groove taken in rapid succession, say one every second, to cover the whole motion. As we've seen, what a dynamical law does is put them in a particular order. For instance, supposing that the pictures were scattered in front of you, you could use the dynamical law to line them up in a row, one after another, according to its prescription. So you would write on the pictures, one, two, three, according to what the law tells you. Meaning, at time one, the ball is at the top of the slide, at time two, it starts sliding down, and so on, until it reaches the end at some time, n. 
So to describe an ordered sequence of snapshots, one has to refer to an external sequence, a sequence of times, say, whose elements are already ordered by labels, one, two, three, and so on. We have found, again, an example of infinite regress. The same problem about ordering the scattered snapshots reappears for the sequence of n times we used to order the scattered snapshots, and so on. In general, a dynamical law must refer to some external entity, time, which is used to order all the events happening during the motion so that they do not happen all at once. Yet the existence of time is taken as axiomatic and never properly explained in terms of anything else. In addition, recall Galileo's experiment. In order to describe the motion of the sphere, he had to time it with a clock. But in the case of the universe, this constitutes a problem. What is the clock to time its evolution? The universe contains everything by definition. There cannot be anything external to it, let alone a clock. These are the two faces of the problem of time, which affects all dynamical laws when regarded as ultimate explanations. Incidentally, this problem also affects laws as formulated in general relativity, where instead of a single external label, time, you have the set of labels specifying a point in space-time. The same problem presents itself as far as space-time itself, which is left unexplained. Here, I do not wish to expand on the solutions to this problem. My point is just this. Whatever the solution of this problem may be, it cannot be given in terms of initial conditions and dynamical laws. Otherwise, it falls into infinite regress. It must be given in terms of some other kind of explanation. Some proposed explanations already exist. If you are interested in reading about them, beautiful accounts are in Julian Barber's magisterial treatise, The End of Time, and in Michael Lockwood's intriguing book, The Labyrinth of Time. Uh, Chiara goes on to point out that this idea of initial conditions and laws of physics where, given the initial conditions, you can then, given the dynamical laws, predict the trajectory, to predict whatever's going to happen to the system evolving over time, is, in a sense, a kind of bias because you could easily choose the end of the evolution of the system as your starting point and retrodict everything that happened prior to that. Or indeed, pick any point on the trajectory, given the dynamical laws, and be able to predict anything else on that trajectory. Okay, this is um, well known and we've talked about this before. So I'm skipping, I'm skipping that bit where she explains that. And then she goes on to write, quote, Dynamical laws cannot handle specific counterfactual features of systems appearing in our universe. They cannot express them fully and adequately. First, there is the kind of counterfactual that declares some transformation to be possible. Consider a specific transformation. Addition. X and Y, two numbers encoded in some numbering system, must be turned into the number X plus Y. When we try to express the fact that addition is possible in the dynamical law approach, we encounter a number of subtle and important problems. One way to express that addition is possible is to say that an adder is possible. An ideal adder is a machine that, when given any two numbers, x and y, in input, it gives output, x plus y, and, mind you, it remains unchanged in its ability to do that again with other numbers. The ability to work in a cycle guarantees that the adder can add again if needed. An approximate adder is included in any smartphone calculator. I say approximate because after a certain number of years, the smartphone's ability to add will wear out, and the precision of addition 
will deteriorate inevitably. Also, the input will be encoded in a limited number of digits, hence achieving only a limited precision. Just pausing there, just my quick reflection on this. Yes, computers deteriorate over time. They are subject to all the laws of physics, entropy and so on, just general wear and tear. And so they will make errors. And as time goes on, they'll make more and more errors. So there's no such thing as any kind of ideal program that the computer can instantiate. There's no ideal adder. Even adding up simple numbers is not going to be perfectly able to be done by any computer over a sufficient period of time. Anyway, back to the book, Cow writes. The possibility of an adder, I just realized that I, my accent probably makes it seem like I'm talking about the snake. The possibility of an adder cannot be expressed fully if one wants to explain everything in the universe using only laws of motion and given initial conditions, as in the traditional conception of physics. For a start, by fixing a specific initial condition, the universe evolves along a single particular trajectory. Set by the said initial condition, no ideal adder will ever appear on that trajectory. On that trajectory, there will only be processes implementing approximate adders <laughs> with limited precision, where only a fixed finite set of inputs is ever added before the approximate adder wears out. Any particular instance of an approximate adder lasts only a finite time and will only ever add a given sequence of input numbers. Otherwise, we would have a violation of the condition that the laws are no design, as I explained in the first chapter. That an adder is possible, or that addition is possible, means far more than that. First, it means that the adder, when given as input to any two numbers, can output their sum. This fact refers to any two numbers. Never mind whether they are actually given as input to it in reality once the trajectory is selected. Second, that an adder is possible means that there is no limitation to how well it can be approximated by any of the approximate adders. But this fact, once more, cannot be expressed within the traditional conception of physics, because the latter can at most say what happens to a particular instance of an approximate adder if it occurs on the trajectory of the universe. It is going to be true on each of the possible trajectories for each of the allowed initial conditions. So even the enumeration of all possible scenarios that would happen if a given initial condition were to be set would not express the possibility of an adder either. Another type of counterfactual that cannot be accommodated in the dynamical law approach is the fact that something is impossible Think of the principle of conservation of energy which tells us that a perpetual motion machine is impossible. In the dynamical law type of approach, one can only say that a perpetual motion machine does not happen. That means that no point on the trajectory of the universe contains one, given a particular initial condition. But that a perpetual motion machine is impossible does not mean it does not happen under a particular initial condition. It means that it cannot be built under any of the initial conditions and any of the actual dynamical laws. This statement is much more powerful and categorical than any of the statements one can make about what happens on a particular trajectory. Okay, I'm just skipping a little and then Chiara goes on to write. A final problem about the dynamical law approach is that it seems on the face of it to conflict with the existence of entities that are capable of making choices, such as you and me. Every omniscient narrator knows this. The omniscient narrator is the entity that tells the story in a novel in the third person. The narrator knows all the thoughts of the characters in advance. Their ideas are set from the very beginning of the novel, 
choices only look like true choices to the characters, but in fact they are predetermined and fixed by the narrator's plans. Likewise, the explanation based in terms of motion and initial conditions would seem to imply that so must be ours. Our choices and everything else depending on them seem already to have been set in advance. They are written in the dynamical law explanation and fixed by the initial condition of the universe. The dynamical law's sequence of events fixes everything. It is given once and for all. All your ideas are laid out there. There seems to be no room for them to be unpredictable, as they should be if they were truly free choices. We have just outlined what is called a deterministic nightmare. The fact that there does not seem to be any room for free choice, if one presupposes the existence of a fixed, predetermined story for our universe, which is the picture that the traditional conception of physics, in terms of dynamical laws and initial conditions, seems to suggest. For example, whether tomorrow you will have croissants or kippers for breakfast has been fixed at the start of the universe in its initial conditions. The same goes for the fact that you are reading this text right now instead of some other book, or maybe doing something else altogether, such as watching your favourite show. All determined at the beginning of the universe, down to the precise words, typos included. Unpredictability of action, or free will, is therefore another counterfactual that the dynamical law approach does not seem to be able to accommodate. We do not yet know how to accommodate exactly free will in physics, but that only means we have to think harder. This problem exists, but it is not insoluble. It only appears to be so if contemplated from the narrow dynamical law type of approach. Pausing there, my reflection, well, well exactly. And then I would go one step further and say, only to some people. Um, I've always kind of thought that even if, okay, hitherto until, you know, coming to understand constructive theory a little better, that even if we had this dynamical law approach to physics, even if that, that was true and that was the only way to conceive of physics, we could still have free will. You know, I'm kind of with Daniel Dennett, but for different reasons. Daniel Dennett is something called a compatibilist. I'm a compatibilist. A lot of people say, well, compatibilism is um, irrational, given we know that the laws of physics determine everything that's going to happen. But do the, does that mean that everything is reducible to laws of physics? For example, the evolution of species. The evolution of species happens because evolution by natural selection actually creates a certain kind of knowledge, the knowledge of how genes can survive in certain organisms, in certain niches, um, uh, to enable to create different organisms and so on and so forth. In other words, I, I endorse a certain kind of creativity, an emergent simplicity. And I think that free will is just a way of talking about this emergent kind of simplicity. The emergent simplicity in this case is the existence of choices that exist in the world. Nothing can defy the laws of physics, but at the same time, the laws of physics don't explain everything. And what we're after when it comes to human behavior is explanations, not merely predictions, that even if you could predict people's behavior, you wouldn't have an explanation of their behavior. The explanation of their behavior would come down to their personal creativity. And all of this is summary. You, know, you, you have to do some linguistic gymnastics in order to avoid this term free will. And if you do avoid the term free will, you're still left with this deep, deep mystery. I've talked about this ad nauseum. I think that free will is tied intimately to knowledge creation. Therefore, it's got something to do with epistemology. And now, you know, I'm hoping that it appears 
we'll have a clearer understanding of it given constructed theory, given the science of can and can't. And what we're saying here is that if we want to understand this more, we want to understand this mystery of what a human is, making choices, creating knowledge, having free will, we need to move beyond dynamical laws that's holding us back. It's leading to a lot of uh, what I would say are misconceptions. Anyway, Chiara goes on to say, quote, Fortunately, the dynamical law approach is not the only way to provide explanations and predictions. Why should all good explanations look like chronologically ordered stories which unfold from beginning to end? The fact that something has happened before something else need not be the whole explanation for how systems work in physical reality. End quote. Um, the next part of the book um, is a, many pages that I'm going to skip. It's about chess and basically... Uh, Chiara uses the analogy to chess to talk about how certain moves are possible or impossible. And this can help to explain the evolution over time of the game rather than simply understanding what will happen given uh, what you saw happen during the game. Understanding chess, in other words, means understanding that pawns can do this and bishops can do that, but not these other moves, for example. Okay, back to the book. And Chiara writes... Can this logic, adopting counterfactuals, be fruitful in physics other than in my elementary example? Indeed, in physics and science in general, we already resort to modes of explanation other than dynamical laws, some of them adopting counterfactuals. What we have in place is, in fact, a hybrid approach. For example, physics resorts to principles like the conservation of energy, which, as I said, are about counterfactuals too. These principles are not in the form of dynamical laws. They are statements that require certain things to be impossible, such as perpetual motion machines. Yet they can be as powerful as dynamical laws at generating predictions. A famous example is the prediction of the existence of the neutrino, a previously unknown elementary particle. This prediction is akin to the prediction of Neptune's existence, but this time it was a prediction of the existence of a subatomic particle, not a planet. And the prediction was generated from a principle, not a dynamical law. The prediction was obtained by reasoning that without that particle, the law of conservation of energy would be violated. It couldn't have been obtained from a dynamical law because the laws of motion of neutrinos were not known until much later. Principles also appear in Newton's laws. Only the second law is a dynamical law relating the force of a system to acceleration and mass. But the other two laws are not really dynamical in their existing formulation. The first law is a hybrid one. It says that it is impossible for a system to change its state of motion when it is not acted upon by a force. Hence, the system will continue in its given state of motion until some force intervenes. The law does refer to dynamical laws via the concept of state of motion. But it mandates, like a principle, that some transformations are impossible, specifically those changing the state of motion of a system without it being acted on by a force. The third law is even closer to being a pure principle. Informally, it requires to every action there must correspond an opposite, in direction, and equal, in magnitude, reaction. If while on a walk in the park your dog is pulling you ahead via the leash, you are pulling the dog back with an equal and opposite pull, this fact is necessitated by the principle included in the third law, not by a specific dynamical law. 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if it were possible to take inspiration from these principles which relate to counterfactuals and imagine an entirely different way to formulate the laws of physics, one that takes counterfactuals as primitive and the laws of motion and initial conditions as derivative? One could even conjecture that this new mode might solve the open problems in the dynamical law approach, as well as fill in the gaps in existing theories while still covering all their predictions the kind of explanation I am imagining, which is that provided by the science of Canon Kant, is even more radical than the hybrid type of explanation which we currently use in physics. It places counterfactuals at the most fundamental level. Then it explains dynamical laws and initial conditions in terms of them. These laws of motion can then be used to make testable predictions about cannonballs and electrons, much as they are now, but their underlying explanations would be in terms of principles about counterfactuals, and this could provide a solution to the infinite regress type of problems I mentioned earlier, e.g. resorting to an infinite set of initial conditions. Just as the counterfactual properties of the chess piece about what moves are possible and what are impossible can explain draws on a chessboard, so counterfactual properties can explain why the universe is in a certain state, avoiding mention of the initial conditions altogether. Both statements about possibility and impossibility are equally important. You will see several examples of laws about possibility and impossibility in the chapters to come. These may seem like bold speculations, and they are. The first time I encountered the idea of reformulating physics with counterfactuals was in a proposal by the physicist David Deutsch. At the time, I thought it was fascinating, but crazy. That was during my doctoral studies in Oxford when, to put it as Alice in Wonderland would, I started trying to imagine as many as six impossible things before breakfast. That idea was one of them, but within a few months, David and I were working together on a paper developing this idea and applying it to information theory. And after my doctorate, I decided to focus completely on pushing it further to try to address various unsolved problems in physics. By then, I was convinced. Its promise was enormous. My research to date, with the help of a few brave students and a handful of other physicists, has concentrated on putting this approach to the test. In the following chapters, I shall explore the problems that this approach has solved so far and its potential to solve further problems. It's time to journey deeper into the land of counterfactuals. End quote. End of chapter two. That's fantastic. So this is a really optimistic, positive vision for the future of physics and the future of science more broadly. I can't wait to continue reading this, but this has been a longish episode if my, if my time is correct. And so I'll finish it up there today and look forward to seeing you in episode four of my readings and reflections on The Science of Canon Kant by Chiara Marletto, based upon work initiated by David Deutsch. Until next time, bye-bye.